Heavenly Father, we do uh, bow before you um, this evening. We do pray for your hand of help to us where we do need it. We pray your word would come alive to each of us. Uh, We pray we could see Christ in it and see ourselves in Christ. And please help us to leave here as people changed by your word and by Christ. Amen. So this evening we're going to be finally seeing Jonah arriving at Nineveh. Uh, But he's anything but a pin-up prophet. As we'll see, Jonah, he's kind of still rubbing two sticks together as a prophet. It's as if he's kind of just got the basics down, which we're going to be seeing this evening in three books that Jonah may as well have written, starting with Prophecy for Dummies in verses 1 to 3, where we're going to see the absolute basics of what it means to be a prophet for God. In the first verse here, from, for the second time in the book, we hear God speak. And if it feels familiar, it might be because he says pretty much exactly the same thing as he said the first time. We hear that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Except if you'll notice, this time God doesn't mention the evil of Nineveh because the reason he's speaking again is because of the evil of Jonah. And so Jonah gives us two lessons in prophecy for dummies. Firstly, that he finally seems to listen to God, which has to be prophecy for dummies 101. If you're going to be someone who speaks on behalf of God, then you kind of have to listen to God yourself first. And Jonah does here, at least the second time. And secondly, Prophecy for Dummies 102, you kind of have to care about the people you're speaking to. If you're speaking on behalf of God and you have a cold heart to the people you're speaking to, then you're not really speaking on behalf of God. But honestly, it's not actually really clear yet if Jonah has actually passed this second subject. Because even though God has just shown Jonah grace by saving his life, Jonah doesn't want these Ninevites to experience God's same grace. And why is that? Well, because Jonah was thinking, these Ninevites are so much worse than me, they deserve judgment and not grace. So what words can show that you can never forgive someone? If you say, I would never do anything like that. As soon as those words leave your lips, you know that you can't forgive someone because you're placing yourself above them. You don't want them to experience mercy. And that's what's holding Jonah back. But that's why God's grace is so offensive because God's grace is showing us here that we aren't better than anyone. That you were so lost that God had to send his son to die for you. That's how much mercy that you needed. And so we can't withhold grace from anyone. And yet, it's so easy to create narratives, to uh, distance yourself from seeing God's work and God's grace in other people, to walk into church and look around and think, well, they've got their life together, they don't understand what I'm going through. They're married, they don't understand how hard singleness is. They're single, they don't understand how hard marriage is. They aren't from the same country that I'm from. It might be awkward to talk to them. They've been to university. They don't understand what it's like to drop out of high school. 
There are so many barriers that we can put up that make it hard for us to see the grace of God at work in people's lives. But God's grace breaks down these barriers and he calls us to take that first brave step towards other people who are different to us. And in Jonah's case, that one step was towards people who are his enemies, towards people he sees as wicked. And he does take that first step, at least the second time round. Which is often how God works. God loves to show persistent grace. God doesn't give up on Jonah or the Ninevites, but he forgives Jonah and calls him a second time. Now, I don't know if you can uh, tell, maybe, maybe it's obvious, uh, but it's quite strange that I'm up here this evening speaking to you. Because when I was in my early teens, I remember my family walking out of uh, church uh, one morning, and I thought to myself, that person up the front talking at church, that is literally the last job I can ever imagine myself doing. At the time, I wasn't a Christian. I thought the Christian faith was a bit of a laugh. There was actually nothing I could imagine doing less. But thinking something like that is pretty dangerous with God because he's got a very good sense of humor. Because through many seeming coincidences, God kept bringing me back time and time again to consider the faith first of all, but then to consider ministry as well. Even one day being one of these knuckleheads who gets up the front and speaks to you. And the same happened for Jonah, because Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Because of God's persistent grace in not giving up on Jonah, Jonah chucked a U-turn, he went all the way back to Nineveh, which is described as an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Now Jonah, he's a small-town country prophet. He steps into this massive metropolis. It would have been like a pastor from Kubapiti stepping into Melbourne for the first time. Although when it says Nineveh is a three-day walk, it's not 100% clear what that means. It could mean that Nineveh takes three days to walk across. It could mean that it takes three days to take in all the sites from Nineveh. It isn't 100% clear. Uh, my sister, she used to live in Calliope, just outside Gladstone, up north. Uh, and Serena and I, we'd drive up there once or twice a year to visit her and her family. We'd get to Gladstone, and no offense, but I think you could say it was a one-day walk. They took us to the shopping center, to the Botanic Gardens, to the Esplanade, and my sister said, uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, but Nineveh wasn't like that. Whatever it meant that it was a three-day walk, it meant that it was a massive, thriving city full of people, full of things happening, full of places to go. But also, I think it's meant to give us another echo here. Because we just read Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, and God saved him. Now Jonah is in the belly of the great city for three days. I think we're meant to be on the edge of our seats waiting to see how God is going to step in to save again. But with this great calling into this great city, Jonah, he would have been feeling incredibly, incredibly small. A small town prophet in such a huge city where no one knew his God. It's little wonder that he ran in the opposite direction when God called him. Because we can laugh and think about how silly it is for Jonah to have run from God's calling, but the reality is, I think often we're the same. 
When God calls us to do difficult things for his sake, how often do we run in the opposite direction? And yet, often, I think we know from experience that the least desired option can be the best option for you, but also for others. When the last thing you feel like doing is going to church or making steps towards forgiveness to that person or to meet a new person who's very different to you, God loves to bless small acts of obedience. Even if we feel like our kindness or encouragements or small acts of service are absolutely nothing, we never know how God will take them and work them in amazing ways in people's lives. And speaking of which, our second book that Jonah could have written, Preaching for Dummies, from verse 4. So when I was younger, like a lot of kids, I wasn't the most concise. And like a lot of older siblings, my sister didn't mince her words. I remember one time I told a story, maybe I went on for a little bit too long, telling the details. And when I finished, my sister said, you could have told that story in five seconds. And it seems like the writer of Jonah here is on my sister's side because the whole story of Jonah going into the great city, preaching to them, the whole city coming to God, it's quite literally told in five seconds. We hear that Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. And then somehow the people of Nineveh believed God. So if I got up this evening and all I said was one day God's going to judge you, then I sat down and all of Brisbane came to faith. That is how remarkable this was. Jonah walks in, he mumbles this seven-word sermon and a revival breaks out. As we've already heard, Jonah was ready to spend three days walking and preaching through Nineveh, but he doesn't even get through the first day. He barely gets it out once. And if Sam was here, he'd say Jonah flicks a cigarette butt into Nineveh and the whole city catches on fire for God. It's one of his favorite catch cries of the book. Jonah can retire after an arduous five seconds of preaching. And of course, normally the prophets of the Old Testament, if you've read through them, they will be passionate, earnest, convicted people who preach for God and no one listens. But Jonah, he's the only prophet who doesn't want anyone to believe his words. And so, of course, he's the only prophet that anyone listens to. But what was it about this sermon uh, that was so powerful? I don't know if people in the morning service could read Jonah giving his sermon, much less you there, but it's in that little text box, I assure you. It says, 40 days and Nineveh will be demolished. I mean, it doesn't have any gripping illustrations, his sermon, any insightful application. It doesn't have three alliterative points. It doesn't mention anything about Nineveh's wickedness, which is what he was supposed to go and preach to them. Even more surprisingly, it doesn't even mention God. I mean, he could have been talking about Nineveh being demolished by a meteor for all they knew. But regardless, because of this sermon, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God, not Jonah. As if God spoke through these words, through his prophet, which he did. Even this reluctant, godless, seven-word sermon 
is enough because God loves to show his power and his grace by working through weak and broken people. Now, I've just shared a little bit about why it's strange why I'm up here speaking to you this evening, but what I didn't mention was that in high school, I was bullied daily for my voice. I'd get called every name under the sun, and so I'd start mumbling all the time because I was so insecure about my voice. The worst day for me at school was a day when I had to make a speech, my stomach would turn, my hands would shake, I would talk too quietly and too quickly, which is, love, which, which is why I love a passage in 2 Corinthians where the church in Corinth is complaining about the Apostle Paul and they say his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. This is the Apostle to the Gentiles, maybe the most effective church planter in history. He wrote half the New Testament, but in the eyes of this church, his public speaking wasn't really all that crash hot. But thankfully for Jonah and for Paul and for me, God loves to work through weak people to show his power, to show his grace. Because God's grace is enough even when we feel too weak or too small to face what's before us. So when you do feel that, when you feel yourself as too small and the task before you as too big, does this make you shrink into fear and paralysis or does it make you depend on the God who loves to work through grace, through weak and small people, through weak and small words? Just one quick example, Uh, some people are very particular about how you should share the Christian faith, how you should share the gospel. They pride themselves on always saying everything when they share the gospel. You haven't said anything about the ascension or judgment or hell or propitiation or atonement, so it's not a full gospel presentation. But if you look at Jonah, Jonah has the worst gospel presentation in history. He doesn't even mention God. But even if we look at Jesus, Jesus never said everything. He often gave people one story with one point to ponder. Now, I'm not saying we need to purposefully skip parts of the gospel message because it's easier, of course not. But I am aware of a pressure that some of you might feel of I can't speak about my faith with my friends or my family because I won't say it properly My words will be too weak and people will think I did a terrible job if I just said, I went to church on Sunday and God has worked in my life. But if you feel paralyzed by that pressure, remember that God works powerfully with our weak words. Even telling people you're a Christian, opening the door for conversation, you don't know how God's going to use that. Hopefully you'll one day be able to share more about what the gospel is, of course, or even when you see someone who's struggling, it can be so easy to think, oh, I, don't, I don't really know what to say. Uh, my words, they'll probably just be awkward. They won't really feel encouraged. I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything. But remember that God loves to use the simple things, including Jonah and including us. Which brings us to our final book that Jonah could have written, Repentance for Dummies. Because again, what did Jonah tell them? He said the whole city is about to blow up. And what did they do? There's an overwhelming, immediate reaction of repentance. 
It says they proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth. Now, I don't know how any of them knew about God's mercy or the need to repent based on Jonah's sermon, but it just seems like the people of Nineveh, they caught a sense of how big and how powerful Jonah's God was and they wanted to humble themselves before him. The text, it even makes a special note, it says, from the greatest of them to the least. So all of their human categories they had before, suddenly they didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter how wealthy or poor or intelligent or uneducated or weak or broken they were, before God, they all needed to humble themselves. And just to prove this point further, we read that this applies all the way up to the king who rose from his throne, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now it's pretty subtle, but this language of rising and falling, it's been kind of going on throughout the whole book of Jonah so far, of people being honored and brought high, or people being humbled and brought low, of people getting closer to or further from God. In chapter 1, verse 3, it said Jonah was called by God to get up and go to Nineveh, but instead, Jonah goes down to Joppa, down to the ship, away from Nineveh, away from God. Then on the sea, in the boat, in the storm, Jonah was thrown down into the sea, stayed there for three days in the belly of the fish. God was bringing Jonah lower and lower, trying to bring him to repentance. Then in chapter 2, what we saw last week, it almost seemed, if you, if you kind of squint, like Jonah was humbled into repentance, but soon enough, we realize his repentance wasn't as deep as it may have seemed. Jonah, he's continually brought low, but nothing seems to change his heart. Over and over again, his heart is cold. He runs from God and his grace. Uh, but when we read that the king is brought low, it's because he's brought low in repentance straight away. He sits in sackcloth and ashes to humble himself right away before his God. And then it goes so far, it's almost absurd. The king issues a decree where he tells everyone in all of Nineveh they have to do the same. And it actually applies all the way down to the animals. It says, furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. From the greatest to the smallest, from humans to animals, every living creature was to humble themselves before this great God. But if you can read that, it says it's not all that the king orders. He actually writes as well that each must turn from his evil ways, from his wrongdoing. Who knows, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Sam talked about how Jonah quoted one of the most famous parts of the Old Testament, summarizing God's character, but he forgot about that part about how merciful God is. And here, Jonah seems to forget the part in his sermon about God's mercy, but the king somehow still seems to know that God might be merciful to them. And so what does God do? Well, God graciously answers every part of the king's prayer. We read that God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. He did not do it. God's grace, it isn't overcome by the violence of Nineveh, 
or the rebellion of Jonah, God's grace overcomes our sin and the city of Nineveh repents. But then we have to face uh, the greatest irony of this book, that it takes a lot more to get the prophet to repent than to get a huge wicked city to repent. Again, this is the kind of thing that every other Old Testament prophet, they would have dreamed about, a whole city coming to God. But here's Jonah, with what should have been his dreams coming true. The whole city repents, they turn from their evil, they seek God. But it turns out this is Jonah's nightmare. So I think we need to go back and amend the title of this section, because Jonah, I don't think, can write the book on repentance for dummies, because it seems like he isn't even there yet. It seems like the Ninevites, and especially their king, have written this book, but Jonah refuses to read it. Because really the book should end here in chapter 3, verse 11, saying Jonah went back to his own land rejoicing. End of story. But no, we get chapter 4, which we'll see next week, where Jonah is doing anything but rejoicing. But by this point, you would hope that Jonah has caught something of a sense of how big and how good and how merciful God is because it seems like everyone else in the story has. The sailors were humbled before God, they called on his name. The Ninevites are humbled before God, they all repent and cry out to God for mercy. Everyone seems to be humbling themselves before God except for Jonah. It seems like everyone else in the story has woken up. Because in many ways, repentance is like waking up. Repentance is living in reality. If you're living as if you're not that bad or God isn't that big or you're trying to get people to see you as bigger and better than you really are, it's like you're living in a dream. But repentance is waking up to live in God's reality where you can see God's bigness and God's goodness clearly And twice in chapter 1 alone, Jonah is called to get up. He's like a narcoleptic. He just keeps dozing off and forgetting who God is. So have you woken up? By this point of the book of Jonah, we've seen God's bigness and his goodness in so many ways. So have you heard that call? If you felt convicted this evening that you do tend to look on others as smaller than you, you know you need to wake up to the bigness and goodness of our God? Or that as soon as I spoke about weakness and brokenness, you knew that I was speaking to you. And you know that you need to wake up to the grace and mercy of our God. When you wake up, you feel God's bigness, you feel your own smallness, you feel your own badness, you feel God's terrifying holiness, and you turn to God to live in light of those realities, uh, which, which sounds pretty mind-boggling, but it's really not. Because you can do them all at once by turning to the face of Jesus. When we turn and look at Jesus, we see God's bigness, we see God's goodness, we see God's glory, but also the fullness of his mercy. God's overwhelming grace in Jesus being the ultimate image of weakness for us, in living and breathing and hurting and crying and dying for our sake. In taking the full judgment of our sin, 
to give us new life in him. In Jesus, we are welcomed in to experience God's bigness and God's goodness forever. So when you fall into the same habits and sins this week as you struggle to look on people with a gracious heart, or when you struggle to forgive those who have hurt you, as the hurts and the struggles and the chaos and the tedium of life come at you, remember, this is always true. This is always the reality. So wake up to God's bigness and God's grace, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me pray that for us now. Heavenly Father, please wake us up to your love. Wake us up this evening, open our eyes to the realities before each and every one of us of your power, of your goodness. Father, wake us from our slumber, whether we're sleepwalking in comfort or in sin or in self-righteousness or in lovelessness. Please wake us up by the power of your spirit and may Christ shine on us. And may he 